Amazing. Thank you guys. Wow. That was a really good idea Pastor Evan had. Get a group together for the summer. And there will be more of that this evening. Good to see you, George. Glad you're here. You always bring interesting sounds out of that. Yes. Very fun. I was away this week. Got away with the family. We were up in uh, Georgia, North Georgia area. We know we lived in Marietta before we came down here, but we were up in that area. And uh, uh, our oldest son, Gable, was working at Cahutta Springs this summer. And it was adventure camp week up there, and Arielle wanted to go, so we took her up there. And our son, Nathan, uh, attended the same week. They have a counselor in training camp. So we had three of our kids there at camp all at the same time, uh, which left Aaron. He had to spend five days with mom and dad all by himself. I don't think he's ever done that in his whole life. I mean, seriously, when does a third child ever spend time with mom and dad? I spend time with mom or dad, but not both. But he held up okay. I think he did all right. I don't think he's too scarred. But we had a really good time. Uh, if one of my hands looks a little funny, you probably can't see it from there. I got stung by a wasp a couple days ago. It didn't swell up that much at first, but, but today it decided to really swell up a lot. So it's funny, I looked down, it looked like I have a child hand and a normal hand. So you know how kids have those little chubby hands? So if I'm rubbing my hand today, that's what's going on there. But uh, it was a, a wonderful time and a great time to be away with the family, but it was in the midst of a wonderful time that we got news of a, of a very terrible thing. And uh, it was at uh, Wakeboard Rad Camp, associated with Cotta Springs Camp, that Will Green was injured in a wakeboarding accident and passed away, injured on Monday and passed away early Tuesday morning. My boys didn't necessarily know him that well, the older ones, but they'd had classes from his mom at uh, Forest Lake Academy. But Aaron went to wakeboard camp last year and, and uh, he texted me when he found out and, and he said he was my instructor. And I asked him later because so many people were saying so many amazing things about Will. I said, uh, is, you know, is he, is he really like that? And is, is he really one of the, was he really one of the good guys? And Aaron said, yeah, he really was a great guy. And uh, that's pretty high praise from him. He doesn't give that kind of thing away. Um, when he came to camp, I was talking to Rob Lang, who's the director. He said, uh, when he came, I introduced him to the staff that world-class Will is here. Now, one of the reasons it'd be easy to call him that is because he really, he really was a world-class wakeboarder, one of the very best. And, but it wasn't just that reason that he was saying it. He was also a young man who was deeply committed to God and to his convictions, so much so that this last year, 
Will Green was the NCAA wakeboarding champion for all of America. But here's the thing about it. Originally, the competition was going to be held on Sabbath. And so Will was not going to participate. But his secular university petitioned the NCAA to make a change in the date. They changed the event and he won the whole thing. He was a world-class kind of guy. And obviously the family is crushed and stunned. The memorial service will be at four o'clock at Calvary Assembly because there just wasn't wasn't another space big enough for all the people that want to be there. And that, of course, has moved our plan for the summer choir concert, because a lot of folks would like to go to both events. So the choir concert will be here at 7.30 this evening. But I hope you'll keep the Green family in your prayers throughout this day, as well as so many others whose life will touch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray for the Green family and so many who are mourning today, but they do not mourn as those without hope. For Will was a, was a strong young man whose faith was solid, and by faith we believe he will live again at your resurrection. Now, Lord, we turn our thoughts and our minds to the word you have for us today. Speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. So this summer we've been using the theme frames. And what we've meant by the term frames, we're, we're comparing doctrines with frames. You see, doctrines, sometimes, sometimes we get a little over-focused on doctrines and, and we start to mistake them for the picture. But the doctrines are not the picture. The doctrines are the frame. Jesus is the picture. The doctrines give us clarity and and a common starting point for life and faith, but we have to be careful, remembering that the doctrines are to increase our focus on Jesus, not take us away. Now, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, we have, as a people together, in our effort to understand the Bible and, and God's teaching in our lives, established what we call 28 fundamental beliefs. If you were to go to the Adventist Church webpage, and, and at the top there was a heading called Beliefs, and you click there, you'd go to a page that, that on the left-hand side had a summary of beliefs, but you went a little ways down on the right-hand side, you'd see a a little bar you could click on that says 28 fundamental beliefs. If you did that, you would be taken to a page that lists the 28 statements of belief. But before you got to those 28 things, you would encounter these words, and I think they're very important. I want to read them to you again today. You would find this. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. 
Revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teaching of God's holy word. The point here is that we don't believe that we as a people could ever vote the perfect statement. The Bible is God's word, and from the Bible we take our understandings, but we call those understandings present truth. And what that means is this is our best understanding right now, but as God leads us, we are prepared to adjust our language to keep in step with our understanding of the Spirit's leading. These are the frames. Nobody's going to change the picture of Jesus, but we may refine the frames. These are the frames as we understand them, and we've talked about several of them already. We talked about the Bible. We started with that one. We talked about creation. We talked about Sabbath. Today, we're going to talk about prophets. There's actually two fundamental beliefs or doctrines that that today's topic intersects with, and even actually kind of three, but we'll only deal with two of them. What we're going to talk about today touches on both, and we're going to start with fundamental belief number 17. Now, the ordering of the number is not anything you need to be concerned with. It's just how they came out to be. But fundamental belief number 17, and it reads like this. Now, it's, it's fairly long, but I think it's very well written, and, and it's very important, all of it. So let's, let's read through it here. God bestows upon all members of his church in every age spiritual gifts which each member is to employ in loving ministry for the common good of the church and of humanity. Given by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who apportions to each member as he wills, the gifts provide all abilities and ministries needed by the church to fulfill its divinely ordained functions. According to the scriptures, these gifts include such ministries as faith, healing, prophecy, proclamation, teaching, administration, reconciliation, compassion, and self-sacrificing service and charity for the help and encouragement of people. Some members are called of God and endowed by the Spirit for functions recognized by the church in pastoral, evangelistic, apostolic, and teaching ministries particularly needed to equip the members for service, to build up the church to spiritual maturity, and to foster unity of the faith and knowledge of God. When members employ these spiritual gifts as faithful stewards of God's varied grace, the church is protected from the destructive influence of false doctrine, grows with a growth that is from God, and is built up in faith and love. All right, so that's the whole statement. Now, in particular, I want to note a little bit of the language in this whole thing, and some of it goes right back to the beginning. It says, God bestows upon all members. How many members? All members. When you come to faith in Jesus, the Spirit gifts you and everyone else with things you can do to make a difference for God's kingdom. So this is something that goes to everyone. But now also notice, it says, God bestows upon all members of his church in every age spiritual gifts. 
He doesn't just bestow some sometimes. He bestows to all members in every age. And in addition, if you notice, it says, given by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who apportions to each member as he wills. The gifts are according to the will of God through the Holy Spirit. The gifts then, what do they do? They provide all abilities and ministries needed by the church to fulfill its divinely ordained functions. So all the members in every age, as God wills, according to the needs of the day. Not all of them have to be present all the time, but all of them could be present at any time. Now, once again, I like this statement. I like how it's put together. I like that it doesn't try to say too much. I like that it remains faithful to the biblical language. You'll hear some of that when we read a couple texts in a little bit. And I like that it's inclusive in nature. It intentionally points out it's for all. Now, it is at this point that we could go into a third fundamental belief of the church, the priesthood of believers, this idea that everyone is involved, but we won't go there right now. Now, from this point, I'm probably going to go somewhere you wouldn't expect me to go. And what I want to tell you is this. I believe that faithful adherence to this doctrine is one of the reasons that Seventh-day Adventism is not and cannot ever be a conservative Christian faith. Didn't see that coming, did you? We've actually fooled ourselves, and I think others sometimes, into believing we are one of the conservative churches. That's understandable. We have a high value of Scripture. We, we have certain lifestyle markers and behaviors like, like eating clean meats and, and meeting on the Sabbath. But I got to tell you, we are not a classically conservative Christian denomination. And we owe that in large part, I believe, to our literal take on the spiritual gifts. Now indeed, we have many literal interpretations similar with conservatives, but we also have some others that do not align well with fundamentalists at all. For example, we believe the Bible is literally the Word of God, but we are not verbal inspirationalists. You know what that is? A verbal inspiration. This is the classic conservative position on the Bible that God dictated the Bible to men who wrote it down. Oh no. We say the writers were God's penmen, not his pen. We believe in judgment, but not eternal hell. That'll get you in trouble with conservatives. Just ask Rob Bell if you know that story at all who became very uncomfortable with the doctrine of, of eternal hell and began to move away from it and was then beaten quite mercilessly by many of the other conservative believers who had once lauded his teachings. We believe the law should be kept, but we don't believe we're saved by doing it. 
We believe that the world needs to hear about Jesus, but we don't believe all are lost just because they never confess the name Jesus. You see, at our best, we are a paradox of literal and figurative, of faith and behavior, of prophetic and of practical, of liberal and of conservative. And you can sure tell that for sure by our political diversity, which we proudly display on our Facebook pages, don't we? You know, I hope you guys aren't friends with each other, because man, I don't know why we don't come to blows more often based on what you guys put on your Facebook pages. We're a paradox. And we would likely never be able to maintain this paradox were it not for our doctrine of spiritual gifts and one remarkable woman who had a gift most conservatives could never accept. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about spiritual gifts. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is an important understanding for us. And Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 12 to detail some of the gifts. But we're going to go over to Ephesians 4 now and pick it up in verse 4 because it gives us the reasoning for the gifts. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now we skip to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you hear some of the parallel language from the fundamental belief I read you? There's more here. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So all the gifts are given by the Spirit to build up, to bring maturity, and for the accomplishment of God's will. Now here's the thing. In general, most Christians are pretty good with most of the gifts that are listed as spiritual gifts. But there's a few of them that they get nervous about. On the one hand, it's easy to be comfortable with someone going to the hospital and we pray for them that modern medicine will heal them. It's another thing altogether when we announce we're having a healing service at the church, isn't it? A little uncomfortable there. 
But that's nothing compared to how uncomfortable people are at the notion of prophets. It all has to do with the dangers of a fundamentalist mentality. You see, the fundamentalist mentality loves the prophets of another time. Oh, they are so faithful to the prophets of another time. Because they never had to discern whether they were prophets or not. They just received what they were given and hung on to it. Because discerning a prophet can be difficult. And telling whether or not this is someone to put confidence in can be a real challenge. But here's the thing. This isn't just a contemporary problem. In fairness, contemporary prophets were always a problem, even in Bible times. You remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees? He says, which of the prophets did you not persecute? And yet now you build monuments on their graves. Is that not the perfect example of this mentality? You see, the gift of discernment is required in order to identify prophets. And that is a gift that we can be uncomfortable using because there's false prophets as well as true prophets. And there always was in Israel as well. And you must discern the voice that is the voice of truth. Oh, but it's so much easier if someone else a long time ago discerned which ones were okay, and I just take their word for it. But that leaves us unable to discern in our own day. So most conservative and fundamentalist mentalities and theologies just rule out the possibility of any modern prophets at the outset claiming that the prophets ended with the writing of Revelation. It's pretty tidy and pretty easy. Is it true? This so-called conservative view is severely at odds with a literal reading of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, Peter is quoting from Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's a great irony in how this verse is read because it's very popular to read this verse that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon God's people, that the gifts of the Spirit will be present in God's people, and that that outpouring would include everything except the only gift actually mentioned in the text. Prophecy. 
How can the Spirit be poured out in the last days and all the other gifts be present except the only gift mentioned in the text? It is the simple testimony of the Bible that in the last days the Spirit will be poured out, there will be prophets, some will be old, some will be young, some will be male, some will be female. You won't be able to tell by looking. Well, okay then, you might be thinking, why aren't there prophets around all the time? Well, we go back to a point in the fundamental belief and in Ephesians, you see, prophets only appear when God decides we need them. You can't become a prophet by trying. Study all your life, it won't make you one. And the church can't just by vote elect one at the general conference session. Second Peter 1 verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't you just hate that stuff that you can't control and you have to trust God for? Prophets is one of those things. There haven't always been prophets around. Sometimes our reading of the Bible causes us to be skewed in our understanding of the fact that, that even in Israel and in Judah, there wasn't always a prophet. The stories are collapsed. These are long time spans, and the stories are collapsed into, into high points and high moments. And very often in those moments there were prophets, but there were long spans between. For example, we have this in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Or Psalm 74, 9. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. It's not up to us. Which brings us to fundamental belief number 18, which reads like this. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction and correction they also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested now there's a couple claims in this doctrine one of the claims is that Ellen G white an American woman who lived from the early 1800s into the early 1900s was a prophet that's a claim Another is that the presence of a prophet is a sign of the remnant church. Now that one is not easy to explain and we don't have nearly enough time to go down that road. So we'll have to do that one another day. Instead, let's take on the other one. The first question is, can a prophet exist in our day? The second question is, was Ellen White a prophet? It's simple enough, if they cannot exist, she was not one. 
But I think we have well established that nowhere does the Bible say a prophet can't exist in any age. And specifically, the Bible says in the last days there will be prophets. So I think that answers the first question as to whether or not a prophet could exist in our day. But what about the second? Was Ellen White a last day's prophet? Well, the best way for you to decide is that you would use your discernment for yourself. But in order to do that, you would actually have to read what she wrote. And not just someone else's list of quotes or someone else's compilation of what she wrote. And if you're not willing to invest yourself very deeply in the process, then let me challenge you to read one little book she wrote called Steps to Christ. And if that in and of itself does not make the point well enough in the title, but if you're a bit more energetic, I'd like to recommend to you the Conflict of the Ages series, five books, four of which are Bible commentary plus continuing commentary on Christian history and the future. Read it and see what you think. Another one I would challenge you to read is called Ministry of Healing. A book that's all about the fact that the gospel and the ministry of ministering to people who are hurting are one and the same. And it is because of words in books like this, in this book and some other statements, that there's such thing as Florida Hospital and Adventist Health System. And then one other I would recommend to you is called Education. It is because of this book that on the other side of this property is an elementary school with 600 children in it. And this direction is a secondary school with nearly 400 children in it. It's so much easier to let somebody else do the work, isn't it? To decide because my favorite person said she's a prophet that she is, or decide because my favorite person said she isn't that she isn't. That's so much easier than doing the work yourself to discern the voice of God in the writings. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe God sent us a prophet because we needed a prophet. There was much that needed to be sorted out and we needed help to do it. But now don't misunderstand the role 
that Ellen White played in the history of the church and especially in the development and the establishings of the doctrines of the church. She was not so much key in writing the doctrines, which I think you'll understand if you actually read these things. She was not so much key in the development of doctrine as she was key in helping us settle on which of the opposing views was in fact the way we wanted to go. It began with what were called the Sabbath Conferences, which was the group of Adventists after the Great Disappointment who got together and began to formulate a whole system of belief that would grow into what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists. And they would work together and oh, what a surprise, sometimes they'd reach an impasse in the room and they couldn't decide. And it would be at that point that the Lord would give guidance to help the group come to unity in faith and understanding. And you know how we have this church organization that protects us from the tyranny of spiritual leaders who would try to force us against our will one way or another? You know how we have this church structure where the church as a people in business session are the ones that decide whether you can be a member or not, not some big fancy person somewhere else that can throw you out of the church? You knew that, right? You can't get kicked out of this church unless the people in here agree you should go. The reason we have a system that is established with constituencies at various levels to protect us from spiritual tyranny is because there was a lady named Ellen White who was always speaking against the dangers of spiritual tyranny in the church and who is always working to keep the leaders who in the name of efficiency and organization would try to force everybody to do it their way. And in the early days of this church, so many of our people were content to just be where they were and believe until Jesus comes. But because of visions received by this woman, the Adventist church came to see that it had a mission to the world. And because of that has taken a single coherent teaching more places on earth faster than any Christian movement in history. She played more of a role of counsel, comfort, redirection, encouragement, than ever a role of establishing rules and directions, no matter how badly we may have misused what she wrote. Two examples of this. One took place in the year 1888. You see, the conservatives of our midst had pretty well carried us straight into legalism, and we'd pretty well lost sight of Jesus. But there were two young men who came along, one by the name of Jones and the other by the name of Wagner, who through their Bible study, who through focusing on the Word of God, came to realize that the faith really is all about Jesus, not about rules. And they came with this radical notion, this righteousness by faith notion. I believe Pastor Sam Lenore spoke about this some last Sabbath. They came to the 1888 General Conference session with this idea of righteousness by faith, but the organization was set against these young men. But there was one who took their side. 
Ellen White, who would later write, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. Aren't you glad she stood with Jones and Wagner that day? But aren't you glad she didn't always stand with Jones and Wagner? It would be a few years later, 1903, I believe, when Jones and Wagner would show up once again with a new innovation, along with John Harvey Kellogg, the great leader of the health ministry of the church. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the director of Battle Creek Sanitarium, attempted to introduce pantheism into the church. In 1903, he and his followers, Dr. E.J. Wagner, Elder A.T. Jones, and Dr. David Paulson, arrived in Washington to convince the Autumn Council of the General Conference Committee to accept Kellogg's book, The Living Temple, which had previously been rejected because of its pantheistic context, contents. The meeting would go on, they would come, they would set aside a day to discuss the book. There was great confusion. At the end, Dr. Paulson would say to A.G. Daniels, you are making the mistake of your life. He was against this. After all this turmoil, some of these days, you will wake up to find yourself rolled in the dust and another will be leading the forces. We had an invent fighting in the church, just so you knew that. It's been around. Elder Daniel straightened up in his weariness and discouragement and replied firmly, I do not believe your prophecy. At any rate, I would rather be rolled in the dust doing what I believe in my soul to be right than to walk with princes doing what my conscience tells me is wrong. After parting, Daniels entered the home where he found two messages from Mrs. White waiting for him. No one can imagine, recounts Daniels, the eagerness with which I read the documents that had come in the mail while we were in the midst of our discussions. There was a most positive testimony regarding the dangerous errors that were taught in the living temple. The message had just come at the crisis hour. As he read, his eyes fell on these words, I have some things to say to our teachers in reference to the new book, The Living Temple. Be careful how you sustain the sentiments of this book regarding the personality of God. As the Lord presents matters to me, these sentiments do not bear the endorsement of God. They are a snare that the enemy has prepared for these last days. So you see, it's not as simple as choosing your favorite teachers and always going with them. Because sometimes they're resisting what the conservatives are trying to do, but other times 
They're taking you where you should never go the other way. And this is the role that Ellen White played. She maintained the paradox. I believe Ellen White is the major reason we've been able to maintain our balance, our paradoxes all these years. You remember that line I said to you about the Bible writers were the penmen, not the pen? That's an Ellen White line. We would have a pretty lousy view of inspiration were it not for her input. Yet ironically, too often we have allowed some in our midst, those who love to honor the prophets of the past but would persecute one in their own day, to make Ellen White appear as the one who makes us a conservative church. She didn't dress conservative, that's how they dressed back then. In truth, I believe she's the only reason we are not total unrepentant conservatives this day. But in the end, it's not about Ellen White. Prophets are frames. She once made this statement, the Lord has sent his people much instruction, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Amen. That was her description of her work. I have written what I have written that you might go to the Bible. Amen. And what did we find out about the Bible when we talked about the Bible frame? What did Jesus say? You search the scriptures. For in them you believe you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. So it's almost a frame of a frame of a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Ellen White, the lesser light, calling us to the greater light, the Bible. But it's not for the purpose of worshiping the Bible. Once again we see the work of the frame is to draw our eyes to the picture of Jesus. All the work of Ellen White was so that we might see Jesus more clearly in these days, that we might be able to carry forward his mission to the world. And I thank God for his prophets and pray that I will learn to listen and use the frames the Lord has given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your graciousness to your people in sending us light. May we receive that light and may it guide us to your word and may your word guide us to Jesus. For in him is our hope. In his name we pray. Amen.